Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 2 this evening, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Blessed that you guys are here. Wednesday night, I'm sure you've had a busy day. You've got kids, youth, made all the work to get them out here. If you're doing Awana with your younger kids, finding their books and their vests and all those types of things, I know it's an investment of your time. I know some of you have driven long distances uh, to be here. We've got a family that drives up from Pueblo every Wednesday night, and they're here. Uh, So, man, praise the Lord. We're here to seek God together and pray that you're fed and encouraged in the Word. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that we can come together in your house to seek, seek your face. And Lord, as we study your truth, we pray that it would impact us, that it would hit our hearts, that we would understand who you are in a greater way. As we look at these real pillars of our faith, these pillars of our, our Christian life, that it would sink deep into us. God, you know us, you know our joys and our struggles, and we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit. Where refreshment is needed, would you provide it? God, where there's correction, would, would you bring it? Lord, we need your spirit. We claim your promise that it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we're going to be looking at four pillars in chapter two and chapter three. I think when you think of a pillar, it's what holds up a structure, what holds up a a building. Without those pillars, the building would completely collapse. And these truths that we're going to hit, these four pillars that we're going to hit, are really important for our Christian life. And as we go through, I pray that we'd be open to the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus often taught us, as he said, if you have ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That was Christ's message to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So we have our physical ears. We're we're hearing physically tonight, but are we open to what the Spirit of God is saying? What's the Spirit of God saying to you tonight? What's he already been speaking to you as you've been going throughout your day? What was he revealing about himself in worship? And as we read these chapters together, there may be one verse or part of one verse that's particularly for you. It's particularly for me. So verse one, but I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then whose is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Paul is giving the reason that he's writing the letter instead of coming in person. He's saying, I didn't want to have this visit be another sorrowful, awkward, bummer visit. So I'm going to clear these things up over this letter. Who enjoys those? Who enjoys those family gatherings where there's issues that need to be dealt with? And then there's the colossal, do you have a minute? You go in the backyard to have that conversation. That's a bummer Thanksgiving gathering. As we prepare for some of these holidays that are quickly approaching, you might be saying, I'm going to make this phone call before we have this feast together. I'm going to go ahead and set up a time to get together. I'm going to send an email. I'm going to work this out. And Paul's saying, I want to work these issues out. And that's why I'm writing this letter to you. In verse 3, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you, and all my joy is the joy of you all. So I'm I'm writing this to you so that I would have joy in our reunion, our joy in coming together. 
In verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you may know the love which I have so abundantly for you. You see the pain in Paul's heart. What went wrong with the church of Corinth and the apostle Paul? We don't know for sure. But we do know that his leadership is being questioned. They're looking down upon him. They're wondering if they can trust Paul. This must have been so difficult for Paul because God used him to plant this church. He loved this church. He traveled to this region. He labored with his hands in order to be there and minister to them. But now they're looking at him like he's the bad guy. And that's difficult. Maybe you've had that experience where you've poured out your life to someone. Maybe you even had the opportunity to lead them to Christ. If someone were to logically look at your track record and the way that you've invested in their life, there's nothing but love. But somehow now there's a fog, there's a mist, and they're looking at you like you're actually the one who hurt me when you've been the one who've helped them. The enemy loves to do that. The enemy is the accuser of the brethren. And if you've been on the receiving end of that, that's extremely difficult. And Paul is wanting to reestablish this relationship So he's wanting to clear these things up. But what happens for us is we get the most descriptive autobiographical language of the Apostle Paul. He tells us more about himself, more about his hardships, more about his difficulties in order to try to rebuild this relationship. And as he corrects them, and as he deals with difficult issues, he says, guys, I wrote this letter with tears. This was not easy for me to write. My heart was broken These pages are saturated with a broken heart. If they don't hear this tone, if they don't hear correctly Paul as he's writing it, they're going to misunderstand. And oftentimes, if we don't hear the heart of God in the letter of God, in the word of God, we misunderstand the Lord. Give yourself a hearing test when it comes to the voice of God. Go back to the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, they sin. God knows It's not a surprise to the Lord, but he asks this question. He says, where are you to Adam and Eve as they're hiding from the presence of the Lord for the first time? And how do you hear that? Where are you? Do you hear the voice of an angry cop? Where are you? Do you hear the voice of your dad when you got in trouble? Where are you? Do you hear the voice of a principal that you can remember from middle school? My middle school principal, literally, his name was Mr. Payne. That was, that was his name. And, and do you hear his voice, Mr. Payne? Some people's names just don't go well with their professions. In my hometown, there was a doctor, and he was a dentist, and it was Dr. Slaughter. And who wants to go to Dr. Slaughter as, as a dentist? But you hear these voices, but is that the voice of God? The voice of God is a loving father And he was speaking to Adam, and he was speaking, he was, where are you? Where are you? I want to restore fellowship with you. You've you've broken my heart. And Satan, again, he loves to come in and twist to where we're reading the word of God, but we're reading it with the wrong tone. We're reading it with the tone of condemnation instead of the heart of God, which is restoration. Paul's writing this out of anguish of heart and tears. Verse five, but if anyone has caused grief... He's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. 
This punishment which was afflicted by the majority is for sufficient for such a man. So now Paul jumps into the issue that he wants to deal with. If you remember from 1 Corinthians, if you were with us in that study, is there was a man in the church who was sleeping with his stepmom, having sex with his stepmom. You can go ahead and say, ooh, gross, right? You know, this was taking place. And the church was tolerating it. They were proud of their affirmation for this sexual sin. Paul writes and says, all right, guys, you've got to deal with this. You've got to confront him. If he's not repentant, you need to turn him over to Satan so that he will come to the end of his sin and repent and be restored. They were at this side of affirming something that God had clearly written against, saying, this is not my will. What happened is this man then did repent, and by the time 2 Corinthians is written, now they have allowed the pendulum to swing to the other end, and they won't forgive him and allow him back into the church. They forgot what the whole purpose of the discipline was, and that was to see him come back to the Lord and be restored to fellowship. And the church of God as a whole, we often struggle with how to deal with sin. And Sometimes we're in that place where we're way too affirming. We're affirming something that we should stand up against and say, this is sin. But then when someone has repented and got right with the Lord, we're too slow to restore and bring them back into fellowship. And so that's what Paul's addressing. He's addressing this man, and he said, this punishment, which was afflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. It's time to bring this guy back in. It's time to forgive him and comfort him. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I may put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. So Paul's pretty clear here. He's saying, guys, this isn't optional. I'm putting you to the test to see if you will be obedient to now restore this man and bring him back into fellowship. In verse 10, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, I've forgiven anything. I've forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should be taken advantage of, lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. So here's the first pillar. And the first pillar tonight is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And there's a very interesting conclusion to this discussion. Paul's saying you need to extend forgiveness because Satan's a real enemy. He's got a scheme. He's got tools and devices. And if we don't forgive, Satan is going to have a victory in this particular situation. In the New Testament, there's four times that we're told to not be ignorant. One is here of Satan's devices. Another is in the book of Romans about God's plan for Israel, knowing that God has not replaced Israel with the church, that God's gonna continue to work in the nation of Israel. So don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Don't be ignorant of God's plan for Israel. First Thessalonians 4 and 5 tells us don't be ignorant of the rapture of the church, that someday God is going to catch up the church, rapture the church. And then in 1 Corinthians, we see don't be ignorant of spiritual gifts. What are four areas that the church tends to be ignorant in? God's plan for Israel, spiritual gifts, the rapture, and Satan's devices. So when we read this, and God says, I want you to know this, what is Satan's tools? How does he rip off 
the body of Christ, oftentimes it comes when we're sinned against. The waters get murky as soon as sin enters the pool. Satan's the ultimate shark, and he loves to begin to swim in that and bring as much division as possible. Satan gets a victory in our hearts and our lives if we don't forgive when we've been forgiven by the Lord. There's, there's a time to stand up against sin for the purpose of restoration, but then it's easy to allow bitterness to set in and not extend the forgiveness that God would desire. We may be at the greatest danger spiritually when we've been sinned against. Because when we've been sinned against, it's really easy to move towards bitterness instead of moving towards forgiveness. Could we agree on that? And Satan's tricky, you know? There's that full-on, in-your-face attack of Satan, but then oftentimes Satan wants to sneak into the back door of a church, sneak, sneak into the back door of a marriage, sneak into the back door of a home, and how does he do it? Very quietly, slowly, and consistently allowing bitterness to set in. There might have been some voices in the church of going, we can't forgive this guy. Look what he did. Look at the kind of sexual sin that, that he was in. Is his repentance for real? Has he really gotten right with the Lord? Instead of seeing, man, God has so freely forgiven me. Maybe you've heard me say this before, but forgiveness is a choice. It's never based in emotion. If you're waiting to feel the emotions of forgiveness, you're gonna be waiting a really long time if someone's hurt you. It's always a choice of this is who Christ is, this is what he's done for me, so I'm gonna extend it to others. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So God forgave me in Christ, so then I need to extend that forgiveness to others. Hebrews 12, 15 warns us, says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Could Satan be in your home and you don't realize it? Could Satan be in your thoughts and you don't realize it? Could Satan be in our church, Rocky Mountain Calvary, and we don't realize it? In what form, in what way, in allowing bitterness to take root? not extending that forgiveness. Are there some names that come to mind in your heart and life tonight? Oh no, he's going there. It's a little deeper. I read a quote this week that truth becomes powerful when it's applied to your world. This becomes powerful when it's applied to our lives. When we start to go, okay, who is it in my life that I'm not forgiving? You've seen it. You've seen someone who chooses to not forgive and they live in the prison of bitterness. It does defile many. It does great damage. It's the root of bitterness. Be merciful. Extend the mercy that we've so freely forgiven from the Lord. Confront when confrontation needs to take place. When there's repentance, be quick to forgive and restore so that Satan doesn't take advantage of us. We're aware of his devices. We're aware of what happens when forgiveness is not extended. Think about this man who needs to receive the restoration, what happens in his life. Think about the people that need to extend the grace, what happens in their lives if they don't provide it. So it's the first pillar, it's forgiveness. The next pillar is gonna be fragrance. Verse 12, 
Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. Troas was a Roman colony, an effective door, a wide open door was open for Paul. I had no rest in my spirit because I didn't find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. This is interesting. Paul's saying that God was doing stuff. There was an open door in Troas, but I was supposed to meet up with Titus, and I love Titus. Titus was similar to Timothy for the Apostle Paul, a man that he was investing in. He couldn't find him, so he leaves Troas to go look for, for Titus. He leaves an effective, wide-open door to go invest in one relationship, and it shows us how much that Paul valued this relationship. And this is weighing on Paul at this time. He's wondering about the safety of Titus. Where is Titus? In verse 14, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. He thanks the Lord in his present situation, even though it's difficult, that God always leads us in triumph. This word triumph was very descriptive in this Roman culture. It talks of the triumphal procession of the Roman generals. When they would go on conquest and conquer another city, another state, they would come back to Rome with all of the spoil, with the prisoners, and there would be this huge parade through Rome. Everyone would come out and they would celebrate and it was, it was triumph. And what Paul's saying is Christ, the ultimate general, the ultimate leader, God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he always leads us in triumph. He always leads us in this parade of victory. And ultimately, that's eternity. Ultimately, that's experience at the second coming of Christ when we get to rule and reign with Christ. But right now, we lay hold of it by faith. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, I don't, I don't see this necessarily. I, I don't know how this is working out in my life. I don't know why I can't find Titus. We don't know how that worked out with, with Titus, but he's saying this is what I know about God, is that God always leads us in triumph. He always leads us in victory because the greatest victory, and we mentioned this on Saturday and Sunday, has already been won because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can be confident that he's gonna lead us in victory because the final victory has already been won. Lay hold of it by faith. What's your situation? What's your difficulty? Life is interesting, isn't it? Sometimes as we look back, we have 20-20 vision. Hindsight is 20-20 vision. You go, God, this was a really tough situation. There was more questions than answers. But now five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, I can see what you were doing, the good, the triumph that you were bringing out of that equation. Some things we don't ever have answers for in this life. It's receiving a peace that surpasses understanding. But many times, the triumph comes way after. We look back, we hold on to it by faith. Also, what God is doing that Paul declares is through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So one pillar is forgiveness. We have to extend forgiveness that we've received and then also we have to understand that our lives are fragrance that's being diffused. And it's the knowledge of him in every place. Now when I say this word diffuser, is there a mental image that comes to your mind? Are there some fragrances that 
come to your mind? We have some diffusers in our home, and what it is is there's essential oils. You put it in this little glass container deal, light a candle underneath it, and all of a sudden the house comes alive with this peppermint smell, and it diffuses through the whole entire house. And you probably know by this point in the illustration that this is not my idea. This is my wife's idea. It's one of her great ideas that that makes our house a a home. If it wasn't for Amber, all the other smells that aren't so pleasant would be diffused from my life. But she makes this pleasant aroma, this pleasant fragrance when, when you walk in the door. But what causes that smell to go through the house in this diffuser with this this oil? It's the flame. It's the heat. It's the candle. I think Paul realizes this and he understands this because the word he's using is aroma that takes him back to the Old Testament where we find the sacrifices that were given to God are a sweet aroma to God. First time is in Genesis 8, after the flood, Noah makes a sacrifice to God. An animal dies, it's a physical sacrifice. There's death, there's pain. And God says, oh, that worship, that sacrifice is a sweet aroma to me. That fragrance is a smell to the Lord that is pleasing to God. And the heart of this passage of fragrance is this idea of fragrance, of sacrifice, of death, of pain. Paul's in trial, he's in difficulty, and he knows God's using this trial to now cause the fragrance of Christ to be diffused in every place where people have the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Have you gained a greater knowledge of who Jesus is by watching somebody else go through a trial? A friend of mine, we did youth ministry together at similar times. He was in Albuquerque. I was here in Colorado Springs at Rocky Mountain Calvary. We'd do some joint youth retreats together. We got married at similar times, have kids similar ages. Two years ago, right before Christmas, His five-year-old daughter, she died of an asthma attack. Very sudden, December 20th, she passed away. And he just recently wrote a book about that experience. And last night, I finished reading that book. And I've got to tell you, the knowledge of Christ is getting diffused out of that heartbreaking experience of losing his daughter. And I know he would never want to go back and do that again. It's not what he would choose. But being a distant observer and reading that book... God's using that to touch people's hearts and his life. And that's what God's doing in our lives as well. Whether it's severe of death or loss of a job or I, I can't find Titus. I'm worried about the well-being of Titus. And so you can probably think of people that you've watched go through trial and you've learned more about Jesus Christ. Maybe you've even come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because you've watched someone go through trial. It's the fragrance of Christ that's being diffused from our lives, oftentimes in trial. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So two groups of people are are having the smell of the aroma of Christ. Those that are saved and those that are perishing, those that have rejected Christ. To one, we are the aroma of death leading to life, and to the other, aroma of life leading to life, and who's sufficient for these things. So someone who is saved or will be saved, they get the fragrance of Christ, and it causes them to long more for Jesus. It's leading to life. 
But there's others that get the same fragrance, the same fragrance, and they go, oh, that's terrible. That's the worst smell I've ever smelled in my life, and it's leading to death. So you need to know this. It's not your fault. Don't take it personal. It's people responding to Christ. And some will respond in salvation, and others will respond in absolute hatred. And then Paul asks this question, who's sufficient for this? I mean, who is able to be the fragrance of Christ, really? And he's going to answer this question in chapter 3. For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. He's trying to rebuild that trust with this church. He says, we're not in this for gain. We're not in this for profit. We're not peddling the word of God. That should never be the case. The word of God should never be given out with the purpose of receiving gain. It should be given eagerly, freely, willingly. Paul says, I've done this in integrity. I've done it with sincerity. And we speak in the sight of God. He realizes that God is present as he is speaking the word of God, as he's writing this letter. So we get these vivid images of the life of a Christian. Fragrance, but now a living epistle. In verse three, but we, being, but we begin again to commend ourselves. Or do we need as some other epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Paul's saying, really? Do I have to show you my accreditation again? Do I have to get out my letter of recommendation in order to, for you to receive me as an apostle? Apparently, there were teachers that would go around at this time and they would bring with them their letters of accreditation saying, well, this is what so-and-so says about me, and this is what so-and-so says about me. And Paul's like, really, we have to go back to that place again, that I have to write these letters of commendation? Here's his letter of recommendation in verse two. For you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. So here's the third pillar, and it's living letters, living letters. He's saying, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, and known and read by all men. So our life is giving off an aroma. Is it the aroma of Christ? And also, our life is giving a message. And is it the message of Christ? And Paul's saying, the church in Corinth, the believers in Corinth, you're the proof of our leadership. It's kind of like, how good is a pizza place? Well, it's as good as the pizza. If you own a coffee shop, how good is your coffee shop? Well, it's about as good as the coffee tastes right? And Paul's saying, if I'm an apostle, and I love you, and I serve you, then the evidence is going to be the fruit in your life. I don't have to produce some letter of recommendation. Just look at how God has used me in your life. You're my letter of recommendation. It's an interesting way to think about our lives. My life is saying something, and what is my life communicating? Here's hope in this, and it's God's doing some writing in our hearts, Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the flesh, that is, of the heart. So it's not that in and of ourselves that we're trying to conjure up a message. It's that God is writing his message upon our hearts. And this is vivid in the Old Testament because in the Old Covenant, God wrote down his law upon stone. With his finger, the Ten Commandments, Exodus, law of stone. But the new covenant, prophecy was that it would be written upon our hearts. 
Jeremiah 31 says, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will take the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Church, do you remember this? Do you remember when your heart was like stone? It was hard. It was rock. The word of God was just bouncing off. People would share it with you, and it wasn't making any sense. You could care less. And then all of a sudden, God did something in your heart through his spirit. And he took that heart of stone, and he gave you a heart of flesh that he could write upon through the power of his Holy Spirit. And these moments continuing as a Christian, they're the best, aren't they? It's when everything gets still, everything else is blocked out, and the Spirit of God's speaking to you. The Spirit of God saying, I love you. You're my child. You belong to me. The Spirit of God's convicting and bringing instruction and correction. It's God writing upon hearts. We're living letters. So I was thinking, how does this correlate a little bit more today? What is the primary way people communicate? Well, it's definitely not through letters anymore, is it? When, when was the last time you got something in your mailbox you really cared about? It's either a bill or junk mail. Christmas is a little bit better. There's probably some things in your box in December that you're interested in reading. So, so your life's a living email. It's alive. It doesn't come on your computer or your phone. It's, it's living. You're a living Facebook message. You know, when you get those private messages to, to your Facebook, and you're that living, you're a living text message. Far out, huh? Instead of just being this message that's text, and we live in this communication, message-crazed culture and society. Things are on Facebook, on Twitter, email and text messages. It's to the point where we don't even read our email anymore, right? <laughs> Remember when that was the thing, and you got an email, and it's like, man, someone emailed me. I gotta, I gotta read this. I was talking to a youth pastor this summer, and he was trying to get a bunch of youth to a conference and churches to conference, and he says, you know what I realized from trying to put this together? People don't read their emails anymore. I thought everybody read their email. I can't, I can't communicate that way. And I think that we need something that doesn't just go through a Facebook feed or a Twitter feed or an email feed, but it's flesh and blood. It's alive and personal. It's someone in your world where their life has been touched by the Spirit of God. Don't you agree? Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but I hope that there's something more behind it, and it's a life that's been transformed by the Lord. Our lives are a living letter. In verse 4, And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. I'm so thankful for this verse in this context. If God told us that we were his fragrance and his letter and then left it up, on ourselves to try to make that happen, oh, that'd be so discouraging. But Paul says, no, the sufficiency or the competency is not of us. We don't think anything of ourselves. We can't accomplish these things, but our sufficiency is from God. That's the message of 2 Corinthians. It's strength and weakness. It's God's competency in our failures. Look to his sufficiency in your life. In verse 6, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. 
For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. I think that this is one of the most freeing sections of scripture, if you can get a hold of this tonight. It's gonna talk about how God brings transformation in our lives, how that we really can be the fragrance of God, the letter of God, and it's through the spirit of God. It's through this new ministry that God has given to us, and it's not through the letter of the law. It's through God working in our hearts. It's not an external set of rules, but an inward relationship with the Lord powered by the Holy Spirit. How far does laws and rules go as far as having a transformed life that looks like Jesus Christ? Not very far at all. I think it only makes it maybe to Thursday morning if we're lucky. All right, here's all the things I've gotta do. I gotta read my Bible. I can't drink, I can't chew, and I can't go with girls that do. Okay, got that. Can't drink, I can't chew, I can't go with girls that do. All right, got that down. And all these things, I got all these rules put, put upon me. But what, what does the letter do? What does the law do? It kills. It kills in two ways. It either produces pride, which kills, because I had a good day. I had a good month. I had a good year. Or it produces condemnation, because I stink. I've failed. I'm a terrible letter. If someone read my life, they would, man, whew. I'm a terrible fragrance. I'm not a fragrance of, of Jesus Christ at all. It leads to death. But the Spirit, the Spirit gives life. And so now there's this contrast at the end of this chapter between the law and the Spirit. But if the ministry of death, which is the ministry of the law, the law led to death, literally in the Old Testament, written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. When the law was given, they already failed before they even received it. Isn't that the truth with the law? Before we even get a chance to live it, we failed. 3,000 people died at the giving of the law because of their sin. Then there's this illustration of Moses. He was on Mount Sinai. Because he was in the presence of God, he had the moglo. His face was radiating, reflecting the glory of God. It was so powerful that the people could not witness it. It was too much. So they had to put a veil. But what they didn't know is that the glow that Moses had was fading. It was, it was fading away because it wasn't of the Spirit. It wasn't something that could be sustained. And so Paul uses this to point us to something that's far greater than the law. In verse eight, how will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? So even if the giving of the law was glorious, Moses had a glow, how much more so is the ministry of the spirit? This was so important to Jesus that when he was with the disciples, he said, all right, guys, hey, look, I'm taking off. Literally, I'm taking off. I'm going to ascend after my crucifixion and resurrection, and it's going to be better for you that I'm not around because the Spirit's coming, and the Spirit's going to be your helper, your teacher, your comforter. And what, what if you had a choice? If Jesus could physically be with you every day or the Spirit of God could live inside of you, what would we all choose? Be honest. Ah, oh, Jesus with me every day. That sounds pretty cool. Him and I go to five guys after church. They're open till 10, you know. <laughs> what do you think of these French fries? All right, we'll try Smashburger next week, you know. And God says, no, 
it's better for me to go away because it's going to be internal. It's going to be the Spirit of God living inside of you, leading you, guiding you, helping you, more glorious. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, then the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. So the law, the letter, brings condemnation, always falling short, but it had glory. How much more so does the ministry of the Spirit? When the Spirit was given in the book of Acts at Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. When the law was given, 3,000 people died. Coincidence? No. God's saying the gift of the Spirit is far more. So we have to ask a hard question. Do we relate to God through rules? And do we point other people to rules? Or do we relate to God through grace and through the Spirit? And do we point people to a relationship with Jesus? Man, Jesus loves you. He died for you. He rose again. Repent and believe. Be saved. He's going to come live inside of you. The Spirit of God's going to start to change you and transform you. You see the difference? Obedience flows out of relationship. A holy life flows out of relationship. It is important. It does take place. But it's not just rules. I get fearful of that. Do you get fearful of that? Because man, apart from Christ, always points to rules. And it's easy for a group of people to get together and start to farm, form their own little system of rules that's extra biblical on top of the scriptures. And then new people start coming around and they feel all this pressure of rules that brings no life change, not being conformed to Christ, only to condemnation, or are relating to God through grace, through forgiveness, through the power of the Spirit. It's much more glorious. In verse 11, for what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. The Spirit remains. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put on a veil over his face, so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Do you see what Paul does here? He says, Moses put on a veil so they wouldn't see the glow passing away, diminishing. But then he uses an illustration and says, Israel, largely, not all of Israel, but largely the majority has been blinded because when they read the Old Testament, they don't see Christ. You can sit down with an Orthodox Jewish person and, and point to places in the Old Testament that clearly point to Jesus and they clearly don't get it and they don't see it because they have this veil and they've been blinded. But keep studying in Zechariah 13 and 14, Jesus returns on the Mount of Olives and the nation of Israel asks, where did you get these wounds? Referring to the wounds of Christ that he bears in his resurrected state. And Jesus said, in the house of my friends. And it's at that point that the veil is lifted nationally for the children of Israel. They understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. There's Messianic Jews now. There's Jews that have understood that Jesus is the Messiah, but largely there's still this veil until the second coming of Christ. Verse 15, but even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Is that your understanding of your relationship with Christ, that it results in freedom? 
And what are we to do with that freedom? We're to use that freedom to serve God and others, but a lot of people wouldn't define a relationship with the Lord as freedom. It's like where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's a lot of sour-faced Christians. There's a lot of people that just look like they got a really bad glass of lemonade, right? Uh, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. I'm sure enjoying that, you know, sure and loving that. In the most positive, godly, holy sense, we should be enjoying life to the fullest because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. He is wholeness, and holiness is wholeness, and he brings wholeness into our lives to where there's freedom to enjoy sunset. When we're in bondage to sin, how much can we enjoy a sunset? How much can we enjoy a sunrise? How much can we enjoy human relationship? But when we're right with the Lord, and we're with the Spirit, there's going to be freedom. The Spirit's always wanting to lead us into freedom. Here's our last pillar tonight, and we'll be done. But we all, with unveiled face, behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The fourth pillar is complete change. Complete change. We've seen forgiveness, We've seen fragrance, living letter, and now we've seen transformation. I think this is what we really long for in our lives, to be more like Christ. But how to get there is so difficult, isn't it? It doesn't come through the law. You've probably had seasons, I've had seasons where it's like, I'm going to pull myself up my, my bootstraps. I'm going to quit acting like this. I'm going to be better. I'm going to do better only to fall flat on our faces and feel totally condemned. And what God is saying, the secret to complete changes is to behold his glory without a veiled face. Christ has removed the veil. The veil has been torn in two to now we can freely, clearly behold the glory of God. And as we behold the glory of God, that's when we're transformed. That's what this verse tells us. It says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image. So as we behold God's glory, as we behold Jesus, we're transformed into his image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's something the Spirit of God does inside of us as we see how beautiful God is, how wonderful God is, how forgiving the Lord is. Maybe you've had a time in your life where your focus wasn't overcoming sin, but your focus was the goodness of God. You just couldn't stop worshiping. You couldn't stop reading the word. We're so humbled by his grace and forgiveness, and then you started to realize, I'm not the same person. What happened? What changed? God did a work in me through the power of his spirit. And the most specific, most targeted way that we see the glory of God is in the person of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says, God, who at various times, in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. The prophets were very creative in their communication. But in these last days, he's spoken through his son, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. Did you get that? Jesus is the brightness of his glory. It's God radiating his glory in his son. And it's the express image of the father. The perfect carbon copy of the father. You want to experience the glory of God? Look at the person of Jesus Christ. 
Why are the gospels given to us four times? It's God saying, don't miss my son. Don't miss my son. Don't miss my son. Jesus is the message of the whole entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. As you're reading it, look for Jesus Christ. Focus on his character, his nature, who he is. Behold his glory. And then we're changed. If you notice in Paul's writing, this was the cornerstone. It was everything to Paul that he prayed for for these churches, that they would have the revelation and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The intimate and personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, because he knew once they were growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, everything else would fall into place. Isn't that true in our lives? It's so simple, isn't it? Oh man, this isn't behavior modification. This isn't me try better, do better. Here's a system of rules for you. No, this is Jesus. Behold Jesus. Look at Jesus. And as you look at Jesus and the glory of God, then the spirit of God begins to work in your life and he brings about that complete change that we really long for. So let's stand together and let's pray through these four pillars. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that we've received, the forgiveness that we've received. Lord, help us to extend that forgiveness to others. God, we don't even realize it, but you are leading us in triumph. You always lead us in victory. We thank you by faith. We thank you that our lives are a fragrance, an aroma of Christ. For those that feel like their life is right over the flame tonight, God, may you encourage them that you are dispensing the aroma of your son. It's humbling to think of our lives as a letter, as a message, and what's being communicated from our lives. But we take great hope as we look at the end of this chapter, the work of the Spirit, the glorious ministry of the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom, not rules, not regulation, not try harder, but to look at you, to look at your glory, to behold our God, and as we take communion tonight, we're asking that it would be fresh, that we would think of your broken body, your shed blood, the crown of thorns placed upon your head, how your back was beaten, you were nailed to the cross for us. God, I ask in Jesus' name, by your grace and your mercy, in our lives and in this church, for this group tonight, that you would give us a deeper understanding of Jesus. For those that have walked with Jesus for a long time, Lord, would you bless them with a greater knowledge. For those that are new in Christ, you give them a greater knowledge of Jesus. For those that don't know you tonight, that they would be saved. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, Jesus tells us that he stands at the door and knocks, that anyone who hears his voice and opens the door, he will come in and sup with them, eat with them, hang out with them. An artist, he drew this picture of Jesus knocking at the door and there was no door handle on the outside. It was very purposeful because only we can open the door to Christ. He's a gentleman. He'll knock, he'll wait. And you've been hearing him calling you and would you respond to Christ? Would you open up your heart? We've been talking about grace and forgiveness. Jesus paid the price on the cross for your sin, yours personally. And if you'll turn and believe and cry out and say, Jesus save me, He'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll be the Lord of your life. If you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior, would you raise your hand, just hold it up high, leave it up. I'm going to say a prayer with you.
Praise the Lord. Anybody else tonight? Praise God. If you're saying, God's knocking on the door of my heart, I want to respond. Just raise your hand to the Lord. Praise the Lord. I see you there in the back. If your hand's raised, pray this with me. If you're listening online to the live stream, pray this with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. Save me. Be the Lord of my life. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for saving me. You can put your hands down. Father, we rejoice. We know that angels rejoice. We pray that you would bless those that have responded to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord.